You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Thursday uh, to you and yours. Happy day after Wednesday to you and yours. The weekend's almost here, and man, oh man, I'm not exaggerating. We may have our best show ever on tap because Steve Kim's here. No, no, Steve Kim is here, but Steve Kim's always great. But uh, the reason why we may have our best show is because Matt Walsh, uh, the creator, uh, the face, the, the front man for a great documentary, What is a Woman? We've been talking about him all week. Matt Walsh is going to be here live in studio with me uh, for the first of a two-part interview. We'll talk to Matt at the back end of this show and kind of delve into who Matt is and why he's so courageous. And then on Friday, we'll air a second part of the interview where we'll discuss what is a woman and my little critique of what is a woman. And we'll have a very uh, thoughtful conversation uh, about that uh, with Matt Walsh. And so I couldn't be more excited about today's show. I'm going to talk some uh, NBA basketball and some NFL uh, uh, uh news uh, as it relates to uh, Jack Del Rio and, and, uh, and the NBA players talking about protesting uh, gun violence. I don't know why I'm stumbling around. Maybe it's because I'm excited because Matt Walsh is going to be here. But uh, before we uh, get started uh, with Steve Kim, let's take a look at Boston Celtic uh, star Jalen Brown and what he had to say about uh, a possible NBA Finals boycott uh, related to gun violence. Whether it's the gun violence that we've seen recently in the, in the country or some of the other things that are going on in the country at the moment, do you think it would ever rise to a moment where players or coaches or maybe both would say, we know it's the Finals, but I can't play tonight? It could. I mean... You keep an open mind, you never know. Um, definitely things need to be addressed. Um, sometimes people argue and say that, you know, stopping a, a basketball game or something that what effect is that actually gonna have on society? And I would say in response that it raises awareness and that's important. It gets people's attention. It, it's, a, it's a topic that's being talked about now and now people need, certain people have pressure on them and changes need to start to get made. Um, so I definitely think it's an effective strategy that could work. Um, do I have the answer if that something that we will see in the near future? I don't, but uh, we'll see. Raising awareness about mass shootings and gun violence. Uh, 
these guys always pick and choose what they want to raise awareness about, and it must be approved by uh, the Democratic Party, uh, social media, and just leftists in general. Uh, no one, I haven't seen one professional athlete that's talking about boycotting the game over the random inner city gang violence that plagues many black communities uh, that these players allege they're connected to and come from. Uh, they don't want to raise awareness about that, but th these changes have to be made. We have to uh, attack people's Second Amendment rights. I'm rooting for the Boston Celtics. I, I, I don't have a problem with Jalen Brown, per se, or anybody on the Celtics, anybody in the NBA. I just want everybody to understand who these guys are. They're puppets for whatever social media wants them to do. They don't have an original thought. They're basketball players. They stick their fingers in the air. They do whatever their agent or marketing person tells them to do. They hop on board with whatever issue uh, is trending over Twitter or over Instagram. And so now Jalen Brown is talking about, hey, we may boycott. And, and I don't even believe it. It won't happen. Uh, it's just someone talking. I'm glad the Celtics uh, won last night. I'm still rooting for the Celtics. Uh, Steve Kim, let's roll out to Los Angeles and bring in the Korean Cosell. Uh, you really think that they could boycott an NBA Finals game over gun violence? Well, we have to be fair to Jalen Brown. I felt as though he was led into that by a virtue signaling reporter who thought he was doing the right thing and helping the cause by, okay, let me have my moment here. Let me be invited to the barbecue and the cookout. Let me ask Jalen Brown this question. And then Jalen Brown is put in a tough position like a lot of other athletes. They just can't say what they really mean. And I'm assuming it would be uh, winning the NBA Finals. I'm not boycotting anything. I've got a job to do. That's probably what he really meant to say. But again, then Jalen Brown has to counter this with his own virtue signaling. Yes, we have to raise awareness, which is another way of saying we're going to talk about it here. We're not going to do anything. But as you mentioned in your opening monologue, Jason, and what I brought about a couple of days ago on this fine program, if Jalen Brown or anybody else would actually go to Philadelphia, Chicago, the Washington, Baltimore area, D.C., Baltimore, New Orleans, L.A., and then say, hey, hey, guys, I want to address something here before tonight's game. I am not playing because of the gun violence in these cities that have NBA franchises. And I believe that we have to eradicate all of this stuff one city at a time, one mind at a time. So tonight's game is not important. If they would actually do that, then I'd say, you know what? I, I think that's more of a noble gesture. But just talking about it, using the phrase, raising awareness, hashtagging on Twitter and wearing a T-shirt, it is basically modern activism, which is a bunch of hollow gestures. Modern activism is mm. accurate. And I don't want to beat up on Jalen Brown too much because I agree with you. This is all a byproduct and outgrowth of the position the media has put athletes in. And I'm going to give you another example of, of this. Everybody made a big deal earlier this week because Derek Carr, the Las Vegas Raiders quarterback, said, oh, I think Colin Kaepernick 
would be a great influence or a great teammate or he'd be a great addition to the Raiders. Uh, and, and, and they made a big, oh, Derek Carr says Kaepernick would be great. And, and it's like, is Derek Carr in any position to be honest? He can only say any NFL player, particularly a white one, if asked about Colin Kaepernick, has to say, oh, my God, are you kidding me? He should be our starter. He could be a great addition because everybody knows what happened to Drew Brees when he defended the national anthem. Uh, you get taken a dump on and you have to apologize. So we've put athletes in the position where they have to lie to avoid the backlash. No, and look, that that's the equivalent of honey. Does this dress make me look fat? Fellas, what are you going to say? <laughs> that is the ultimate catch 22. But in the ba- okay, but I'm going to play true serum again. While Derek Carr was playing platitudes, this is what was really going on in his most honest self. Yeah, I love Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> My job's under no threat. That guy's got a strong arm, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Yes, he's the perfect backup. There's no threat. My job is safe. I'm good. So, yes, in that respect, he'd be a great teammate. And, by the way, going back to Jalen Brown, played a great first quarter, came out of the gate. Now that he's two games away from winning an NBA championship, but these things are extraordinarily tough to win. Look at all the great players throughout history that have never sniffed a Larry O'Brien trophy. Is someone going to dare ask him, well, hey, uh, you know, to raise even more awareness now that you're up 2-1, how about sitting out game four? I, I would love to see someone ask that question just to see if Jalen Brown would slip up and would say, reporter, please. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of someone who initially didn't back down uh, and said something inappropriate uh, or the media considers inappropriate, Jack Del Rio, uh, the defensive coordinator for the Washington Commanders, uh, had an interesting day yesterday on Twitter and then meeting with the press. And, and so let's, let's watch Jack Del Rio talk about January 6th with the media yesterday. I just asked a simple question, really. Did I, it, let's get right down, down to it. What did I ask? A simple question. Why are we not looking into those things? If we're going to talk about it. Why are we not looking into those things? Because it's kind of hard for me to say I can realistically look at it. I see the images on TV. People's livelihoods are being destroyed. Businesses are being burned down. No problem. And then we have a dust up at the Capitol. Well, there's nothing burned down. And we're not going to talk about We're going to make that a major deal. I just think it's kind of two standards. And if we apply the same standard, and we're going to be reasonable with each other. Let's have a discussion. That's all it was. <laughs> Let's not get into his apology just yet. I'm blown away. I like Jack Del Rio. Uh, we follow each other on Twitter. I like the guy a lot. Why do you think he made those comments? Well, it looks like he was asked about it, and may he may have made a tweet about referencing that and then maybe the media followed up as they clutched uh, they clutched their pearls my question is this 
if everyone is allowed or certain people allowed to have opinions about what happened on January 6th, whether you call it a dust up or an insurrection or an all time invasion on democracy, which is fine. Why can't other people not look at the riots of 2020 in a harsh light? There was literally billions of dollars worth of damage done. There were burning buildings. There were people doing smash and grabs, which last to this day. Individuals lost their livelihoods and their businesses, regular everyday people. And history has shown that the neighborhoods in which these incidents or dust ups take place, it takes years for them to ever recover if they do. I wish Jack Del Rito would have just backed up and said, well, let me ask you something, because let's put the reporters on the spot since these guys want to be activists. Well, what do you think of those businesses that burnt down? Are you okay with that? But again, I, I think the problem is Jack Del Rio didn't read the room. If you are in professional sports and you're going to be covered by the mainstream media, and then this is always brought up, and most of your players are black, how can you dare say that? It's almost like you're handcuffed. I give Del Rio credit for at least initially having the guts to say, look, this is my opinion. This is what I think. Let's bring about a discussion or a conversation. But I'll say it again. It's the double standard, no standard. There's a double standard for people like Jack Del Rio. And on the other side, there is no standard. It's high risk what Jack Del Rio did, though. Uh, and perhaps unnecessarily high risk because I'm sure he did it because through his playing career at USC and in the NFL, his coaching career throughout the NFL, he's had so much engagement with black teammates, black players he's coached, and had so many real discussions with them and that's the environment of a locker room you can be real and he and and like you can say what you actually think and no one takes it personally but now in this new environment they've created in the last decade through social media we live in this make-believe world where jack del rio has now made himself vulnerable he's the defensive coordinator of the washington football team if there's some player he has to bench or some player whose role uh, isn't what the player thinks it should be. And again, the defensive side of football is dominated by black players. White coach, coaching a bunch of black players. There will be some black player that he'll have (coughs) some tension with because that's natural in athletics. And he runs the risk of that player playing the race card on him and with that player knowing the whole media system is rigged up to say, well, you're, you're right, Jack Del Rio, you know, he doesn't understand why we burned down all these cities over George Floyd. And, you know, therefore he's racist. I, I just think, and again, I like Jack, I love the authenticity of it, but it's an unnecessary risk that could blow up in his face. No, there's no doubt. It's interesting. I saw something on Twitter where Brian Mitchell, one of the all-time great Redskins, great special team player, consummate football player, gave an interview about the Del Rio comments, and he was very heated, very angry. And one of the things he said was, this is one of the issues with the Washington franchise. And I'm thinking, B. Mitch, really, Jack Del Rio's comments and his opinions on that. 
out of all the things going on with the Daniel Snyder-led Redskins, the opinion of a defensive coordinator on a social – that's the issue. It's not the drafting. It's not the personnel. It's not some of the uh, other scandals going on. You're telling me really that? And, and that, that's the amazing part. Look, uh, I think everyone – is in favor of peaceful protest. That is part of the fabric of America. However, there seems to be something very dishonest about the conversation when you have images that are seared into our head of burning buildings, the looting, the rioting, the lawlessness, the economic impact that still really affects people to this day. And then you try to tell us, well, it was only... 3.7% of the uh, protest that got out of hand. Uh, Okay, that's interesting. But someone on Twitter, Sean, uh, the messenger, made a great tweet. said, if we're all in a swimming pool, having a good time, and someone took a leak, well, it's only 3.7 or the what? No, trust me. We'd be streaming out of that swimming pool. It's like that. Remember in, in Caddyshack when someone dropped the baby Ruth bar into the pool and people were jumping out of there? It's the same. It's, it's exactly the same point. Yeah, only 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 three point seven percent of the people at this party got shot. That's a yeah, safe party. Let's go. Bad. You're on for good. You're on. But you know what? Bring the Kevlar just in case. You never know. You never know. Jeez. Oh, uh, so Jack Del Rio issued an apology uh, over Twitter. I made comments earlier today in referencing the attack that took place on the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. Referencing that situation as a dust-up was irresponsible and negligent, and I am sorry. I stand by my comments condemning violence in communities across the country. I say that while also expressing my support as an American citizen for peaceful protests in our country. I have fully supported all peaceful protests in America. I love, respect, and support all my fellow coaches, players, and staff that I work with and respect their views and opinions. Again, he's doing damage control, and I, I, I get—I guarantee you, Daniel Snyder, with all the controversies going on and yeah. people trying to run him out, he doesn't—he doesn't want or need this. But I, I just think it—it it indicates people are reaching their breaking point with this lunacy and hypocrisy and social media, social media foolishness, and just the players. Many, and, and guys like Brian Mitchell just y- taking people out of context and just abuse. I think people are reaching a breaking point where they're just like, F it. I don't care. I'm going to say what I think. That may be true, but uh, there comes a breaking point where you have to have some guts that either you better be independently wealthy and you are willing to stand on your square, as they say, and to lose your job. I get the sense, and again, I have no inside information. I'm not Adam Schefter. Mr. Del Rio was told, Jack, look, we love you. We don't even disagree with you, but you better issue an apology or we're going to have to let you go. Look, everyone's in survival mode. and But that's one of the things. To be a revolutionary, you have to be willing to lose everything. And look, I'm not going to completely rip Jack Del Rio for doing what he did. He's got a family to feed. We all want to make a livelihood that is good for our family. And he's a football guy. He wants to do football. I get it. But you have to understand, if you're going to say something to this degree that's going to be so incendiary, for lack of a better word, you better be willing to understand what you could lose from those statements. 
right, I want to move on to a, a final little sports topic here. Uh, the Deshaun Watson debacle. Oh. <laughs> and oh, it is a debacle. Oh. Uh, there are reports that 60, he called 66 different massage therapies in a 17-month period. Uh, some of the latest allegations are getting pretty salacious. The details that are coming out of him masturbating in front of these women. And again, they are trying to embarrass this dude into coughing up the money to, to make this go away. But there, and now there's allegations, and again, they brought the, the Texans into it, alleging that the Texans actually drew up a non-disclosure agreement that <laughs> Deshaun Watson was handing out to all these different massage therapists. And so not a good look for the Texans. But I think, and this is where the question lands, I think the the person, the group that looks the worst in all of this, more so than the Texans, and I'll say even more so than Deshaun Watson, the Cleveland Browns for trading mm-hmm. for this guy and handing him all of that money. This seems crazy. I think the Browns look worse than the Texans. Yeah, this is a new uh, definition of the Cleveland steamer. A couple things here. I remember last year, the Oliver Stones, who were caping up for Watson, they were actually accusing the Texans of rigging this story against them. It turns out they were trying to cover up and hide it for him. They were in on it, so that doesn't look good. Uh, The other thing is, uh, I don't think, as someone that does yoga, it's great for the back and everything, I I may never do the happy baby pose again without ever thinking of him. That that one part of that story is so salacious. (laughs) I don't want to laugh, but it is funny. I'm not going to lie to you. Here's the other part. Uh, Just just thinking as a man, okay? I'm not the most ethical or moral guy. I, I live a regular life, but if you just want a massage, Go to a massage place. There's sports massage. There's all sorts of different massages. You can get some fetishes done, whatever. Not my business. Do you. But if you want the extras, there's also places for that. I did not understand it because this is not about massages. It is not about that industry. The important word here is consent. And that's where it gets really dicey and I think dark for Deshaun Watson. When you force people against their will who are just trying to make a living and to do things against their consent, that's where it's like, wow, that's where I think everyone basically draws the line. The other thing that really had got me shaking, he would actually tell some of these young ladies, well, I just love to help black businesses. Oh, God, really? (laughs) And that's that's, that's like that strip club that says, yeah, we're just putting kids through college. We're we're like the United Negro Fund or whatever. Like, really, Deshaun, just get what you want, okay? Don't don't try to make this anything more altruistic than it isn't. That's my general thoughts on that. Jeez, what a fine mess. Fine mess. (laughs) I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can top any of your comments. I'm just. I'm blown away. I'm literally. I'm blown away when a guy worth that kind of money. Right. Is, is being that irresponsible, that cheap, and that stupid. He's, the money puts a, a target on your back, but it also provides you, if that's your thing, if that's your outlet, and you're worth $100 million, you can give up less than, one, less than a half percent or you know, 
a couple hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, and get all of that happy ending taken care of without any of this garbage and and you know. I, I'm gonna leave it alone. I mean, before Jason, I say too much. But the guy, the guy, all he, he he's he was playing in Houston. Go to Treasures, man. Go to go to Treasures, <laughs> and you'll get a reach around, a happy ending, and all of it. And it, it you won't go through this kind of embarrassment. I mean, think about it. He's a good-looking young man who is an elite quarterback in a state that loves football. It has to be thrown at him. I mean, thrown <laughs> at him. <laughs> Anyway, just yeah. saying. Just saying. Yeah. God. All right. Ugh. All right. Let me take care of some business before we get to our approval rating on Jack Del Rio. Uh, let's face it. Shopping for life insurance is no fun at all. All that hunting down quotes and keeping track of who's who can be a real hassle. But if you've got people who depend on you, children, parents, or even business partners, it's incredibly important. Policy Genius is your one-step shop, one-stop shop to find the insurance you need at the right price. Head over to policygenius.com/fearless to get started. In minutes, you'll be able to compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Policy Genius doesn't add extra fees, doesn't sell your information to third parties, and they have thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and has placed over 150 billion in coverage. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies. So get started today. Head to policygenius.com/fearless to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. All right, let's move to our approval rating. All right, Steve, uh, we're going to do an approval rating on Jack Del Rio. Uh, I did a little homework uh, in this job performance. You know, the Washington's defense gave up about 25 points last year. I think they were maybe ranked the 25th best defense in the league, according to points allowed. Uh, that's toward the bottom of the pack, so I can't be super high on job performance. And now he's caused a little complication here for the Washington Commanders. So I give Jack a nine in job performance. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Look, like I said, he's a consummate football player, played at USC, had a long NFL career, mostly with, I believe, the Vikings and the Dallas Cowboys, a little bit with the Saints. And then, look, he's had a good coaching career, good enough to be a head coach twice, made the playoff a few times. But again, last year, not a great statistical season for that union. I gave him a 10. Mm. Uh, character, uh, I'm high on uh, Jack Del Rio's character. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of his. I think that, you know, he stands up for what he believes in. I think he's handled this particular situation, this little dust up that he's in, uh, in a proper way. Uh, so I give him a 23 in character. You know, even though I ripped him for not reading the room or his own circumstances of his profession correctly, just to go out there and speak and utter those words in front of the public in, in the age of social media, as a white guy, I think that takes a lot of guts. Because he had to even know that was not going to play well. And for that, just to stand in the firing line, even before he backed off, I'm going to give him a 25. Uh, authenticity, I would have, you know... I got to mark him down a little bit for the apology he put out. 
but he's pretty authentic. I, I think it took some real authenticity to make his original statement over social media and then to stand in a press conference and make the statements he did. So I'll give him a 22 in authenticity. You know, I'm going to repeat myself again, just to go out there in this political and social climate, given the nature of the mainstream media, even sports. There used to be a time when sports writers, you really never knew their politics or their social leanings or any of their beliefs. Now it seems to be a prerequisite to even get one of those big jobs. And I thought he expressed his position very clearly before the apology, which I believe there was a gun to his head on that one. So I want to give him a 25. I, I still think it takes a lot of balls to do what he did. All right. It factor. Hadn't been a head coach in a few years, about five, six years, uh, but he's back in the news uh, cycle. He's got something. And so I think he's got a little it. So I give him a 12 in it factor. All right, this is where I knock him down. If he just would have stayed on his word and said, look, I have nothing to apologize for. We do not have to agree. And and he would have put his own neck on the line and would have told the Redskins, look, uh, you're not getting me to back down. I would have given him a 25. I think he could have made himself a hero to the American working class and to a lot of uh, regular Joes out there. But he didn't. Again, we all have a survival instinct. And for that, I give him a five. Mm. Uh, somehow we basically arrived at the same mm. score. I've got him at a 66. You've got him at a 65. We both have Jack Del Rio at a grease fire. Uh, Steve, I, I got to say this. I can't wait to let you go because Matt Walsh is here <laughs> and he's going to be in studio. And we're going to talk about what is a woman. Uh, we'll give you a little preview, a taste of a longer conversation we'll have with Matt on Friday. But uh, we'll take some time today to get to know Matt a little bit better so you can enjoy the Friday conversation even more. Matt Walsh. Welcome back. Uh, I don't know if I could be any more excited uh, about this next interview. We've been talking about him all week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, we've been talking about his documentary, What is a Woman? Uh, I, I'm going to play just a little taste of the documentary and slightly connect it to uh, the sports world because Martina Natratilova, the great tennis player, she's been outspoken on this whole transgender issue and was shocked by one of the most provocative, uh, enlightening, shocking scenes in the documentary. And so I know many of you have seen it, you've heard about it, but I just want to give you a little taste of Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman, that tried to get all these allegedly educated, very smart people uh, to tell him very simply what a woman is, and they couldn't do it. Here's a little taste. Male gametes, that's what makes me male. No, your, your sperm don't make you male. Then what does? It's a constellation. In reality, in truth, okay? Whose truth are we talking about? The same truth that says we're sitting in this room right now, you and I. No, you're not listening. If I, if I see a chicken laying eggs and I say that's a female chicken laying eggs, did I assign female or am I just observing a physical reality that's happening in the world? Does a chicken have gender identity? Does a chicken cry? Well, Does chi a chicken commit suicide? Let's frame it, because you're talking, you're trying. A chicken to, has sex like any, like any biological organism. A chicken has organism. an assigned gender. 
But a chicken doesn't have a gender identity. So we assign female to chickens when they lay eggs? That's a, we that's... assume they're female if they lay eggs. All right, so uh, joining me today for just a preview, we're going to do the full interview tomorrow. But I, I just wanted to whet your appetite for what I think is going to be a great discussion between Matt Walsh and I. You've heard me talk all week about my contention. Like, I love the documentary, but I, I wish that he included more of a biblical perspective. I'm going to put that on the back burner. You're going to have to wait to hear that discussion tomorrow because today I just want to give you a little taste, a little tease. I want to learn a little bit more about Matt Walsh. Uh, and then it may inform some of the questions that I have for Friday's show as it relates to Matt. Matt, uh, the host of the Matt Wall Show on The Daily Wire, successful author, and now a highly successful documentarian. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for, having, thanks for all the support of the film, too. I really appreciate it. Uh, Matt, when I hop on board with someone or something, I hop all the way on board. And just me watching your Twitter feed, uh, that's where I was really first introduced to like, wow, this dude is fearless. And, and then you've just backed it up with this documentary uh, today or last week and, and moving forward. And you tweeted out uh, this week that you've had some credible death threats as a result of this documentary. Can you tell us about that and just how has your life changed almost instantly because of this documentary? Yeah, it's been, uh, we, we, we knew that this is the third rail topic in society is gender. It's, the, it's like the sacred cow, it's the thing you're not supposed to talk about. So we expected that there would be a pretty significant backlash and there has been. There, there's, they threw some curveballs at us that I didn't see coming, like the cyber attack on the premiere to try to shut it down. Um, and then other things that we expected, trying to deplatform me. They've been mass reporting accounts, and then and then the, the death threats start rolling in, um, and we have you know we're taking care of that. We go to the police with that. That's all. That's all being handled on the legal side of things. Um, but I, I've really been that doesn't surprise me as much. Um, I've been very pleasantly surprised by just the the positive reaction. How kind of uh, how it, it seems to be cutting across. It's not just in the kind of conservative podcast bubble. We've been able to break outside of that, and, um, and I've been really pleased by that. You've been able to do it without a mainstream critic reviewing the documentary. Is it, isn't that accurate? Yeah, we have not had one review from, the, the, in fact, we've had one film review period of it, and this was uh, Christian Toto, who's, who, who writes for The Daily Wire. So he reviewed it, but uh, we haven't had any corporate media critic review it. And so right now on Rotten Tomatoes, I think we have over 2,500 audience reviews, a 97% rating, and zero critic reviews. And I, I think that, I'm not sure if that's ever happened in the history of that website. I, I'm not aware of any other example of a movie that is this highly rated by audiences and has been this widely viewed. We're also the number one streaming movie on the website right now, the most popular one on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and the critics just refuse to even watch it. They won't go anywhere near it. Okay, so... I, and this is not a defensive question. I just want clarity. I know I'm not mainstream corporate media, but what would you call my column about what is a woman? Is that a critique? Is that a review? What, how, what classification is that? I guess I would call that a review. I think that's, so I'm putting that outside of corporate, yep. mainstream. Yeah, I put the Daily Wire outside of that. You know, that's, uh, 
in the in the the corporate press world of of film critics, especially maybe that's another way of looking at this. Professional film critics, but this is what they do for a living as they talk about and watch movies. Um, none of them, except for the one who writes with it for our site, as far as I'm aware, has gone anywhere near the movie. You know, as a sports person, what's fascinating to me, because you guys covered the Leah Thomas situation in your documentary. This whole what is a woman transgender issue impacts the sports world tremendously. And so this cuts across all medium, media spectrums and genres. So like ESPN should review this movie. The Ringer, Bill Simmons's group, they should review this documentary because this could have monumental impact on the sports world. When Martina Navratilova is commenting about it, one of the greatest female athletes of all time is commenting on it, but the mainstream sports media won't touch it that's baffling to me. It's baffling until you realize that uh, they're all beholden to left-wing ideology and they realize that the film's going after something that is indefensible, especially in context of sports. I mean, the, the idea that males should compete against females, it's an indefensible proposition. And so I think what they'd rather do is just, is just hide and wait for it to go away. It's, a, it's like Jurassic Park. You know, uh, the T-Rex's vision is based on movement, so just kind of stand there still, don't do anything, and he'll walk past you. And that's what they're trying to do with this movie. That's what they're trying to do with the entire issue, which goes beyond the film. The backlash against this gender madness is like the giant T-Rex that they're trying. They're just kind of standing there and hoping that it moves on. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think people are going to move on from this. I think people are fed up, and uh, they want to return to some semblance of sanity in our culture. And so the critics and everybody else, they can... They can Try to remain silent as long as they can, but I, I don't think it's going to hold. I think eventually they're going to have to come up with some kind of response to this. I don't know the answer to this question, so I probably shouldn't ask it, or I don't even know. But you came with a gentleman, and I'm wondering, is that a driver or is that security? Is your life moved to a point where you need security when you're out in public? Yeah, we have security right now um, because of the threats. You know, that's, And the thing is, we know that... Most of the people that make threats, they're just keyboard warriors. But um, also, we're, you know, there, there are a lot of really deranged people out there. And so you have to take, we're going to take every threat seriously. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to go to the police. I mean, to make an explicit threat against somebody, as in, I'm going to kill you, is a crime. And we're going to go after you for that. It's just simple as that. Well, and I think we're living in a time where someone showed up at Brett Kavanaugh's house at 2 in the morning with a gun. Right. And, and... And that's what I, uh, I'm telling you, I can tell from your Twitter feed, like, man, this guy's courageous, and his wife must be courageous, too, because they know what they're doing, and they know what they're in for, and we're living in this time where leftists, when they can't win an argument, they do turn to violence. And so I, that's what fascinates me about you. I know you did. You're a smart person. You and your wife had to do all these calculations Am I correct? We did. I mean, this is something we talked about, not just me and my wife, but uh, at The Daily Wire, other people involved in the film. We, we, once we started filming it and we saw what we were getting, you know, we, we would talk about this like this is a, a bomb that we're going to be metaphorically, you know, setting off. And uh, we just got to be ready for it. But there, there, was never any, there was never any discussion of, oh, maybe we shouldn't release it. Maybe we should back off. It's just that was that's just not even an option. Um, 
So we're prepared for it, but that doesn't, that's also doesn't make it any less sort of disturbing. It certainly doesn't make it okay. Okay, where are you from? Where'd you go to high school? Where did you go to college? Uh, what were your parents like? <laughs> uh, I'm from Maryland and uh, originally and from the kind of the Baltimore area. I didn't go to college at all. Um, I went to community college and then I dropped out. So that's my, that's my entire post high school education, uh, formal education, you know. And I found that actually I can you, can, you can not go to college and just and pick up like books and read them and learn that way. So I found that to be quite uh, useful. Um, I come from a conser- conservative Catholic family. I had five brothers and sisters. Um, Your parents were they educa- college educated? Or? Yeah, college educated, and and they they raised us. I went to public school, and um, and it was even different back when I was in school. It's gotten a lot worse now, but it wasn't all that long ago. And so it was a liberal area. So my parents they were very. Yeah, they would sit us down every night. They wanted to hear what we learned in school. They wanted to hear. They, they wanted to hear if there was anything told to us by teachers that wasn't true. Oftentimes there was. They'd correct that, um, and they encouraged us, in, even in public school as kids, to look. If you hear something that's not true, if there's something going on that's against your values, you should stand up. If you get in trouble for doing that at school, you won't be trouble at home. At home, be in trouble at home for doing that. Um, and so that's how we were. We were just kind of raised in that in that environment. And so you don't go to college. When does the thought cross your mind? Hey, I want to be a public intellectual. I want to take on the establishment uh, through with ideas and just uh, be a media personality. Well, I started. Uh, it, I started just kind of blogging. I guess it was, I mean, it was ten years ago now, and um, kind of writing about. A lot of the similar things I write about now and talk about now, uh, cultural issues. And um, I found early on, I think I, I was sort of lucky because early on in that, in that process, I had a couple things that I wrote that went viral. And um, it, it was also back in the kind of the Wild West days of social media where you could actually write things and, and post them and, and have access to an audience and they weren't, they weren't stifling it the way they are now. So I was able to take advantage of that, I think. Um, and so that's kind of where, it, where it, it started, grew an audience from there and started building over And so years. at one point you were here at the Blaze, I'm accurate, right? Yeah, I, I was actually at the Blaze for uh, three years. Yeah, and it was just writing. I didn't, do, uh, I didn't really do a podcast. Be, because it, you didn't feel like that was a strength of yours or it just didn't come with the idea, didn't ever cross your mind or? Kind of a little bit of both. It, it, it felt uh, to, to build, you, know, you build an audience through writing and that's one audience. And then to try to bring that over to another forum is, is difficult to do. Um, and so it's, it seemed like it would, that'd be a hard task. So I kind of focused on the writing. Went to the Daily Wire and, and uh, first I'm writing, I did a lot of writing and then we started a podcast. And originally at the Daily Wire, I was doing my podcast in my car um, just with a webcam. And I was, in the, I was in my car because I, had, I was working at home. They were, in, they were in Los Angeles. I was in Pennsylvania at the time. And, uh, and I have four kids at home. And so I couldn't do it at home. It was just too loud. So I'd go in my car and just kind of rant to my dashboard. And uh, you and Kwame Brown, do you know who Kwame Brown yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the car could be a good, it could be a good uh, little studio. It's got good acoustics and everything for it. Um, and it kind of proved my point, though, when, we, when I tried to make this jump to this different forum. It took a long time to build it. 
you know, I was talking to an audience for a while that was much smaller than the audience for the writing, and it takes a while to, to build that up. Were you a natural at it? Because I'm telling you, watching you in What is a Woman, your dry sense of humor, your self-control, your ability to think on your feet, this all seems very natural and instinctive, or is that something you had to learn? I mean, if I go back and watch some of the early car brands, I, I kind of cringe a little bit. So I don't know how much of a natural I really was. You, you always have to learn it and, and hone the craft, I suppose. But um, you do have to have, I guess, a, in order to survive, I mean, you know this, in a business like this, you have to have some natural aptitude. I, I don't think you can walk into it. And we see, you see people that walk into it with no natural aptitude, and uh, I think they tend to, to wash out pretty quickly. So there's got to be something there, but you still have to, you have to put the work in. The other thing I've noticed just in this... Uh, in the media business is that uh, you, th- you, almost, you almost think going into it that everybody in it is really ambitious and they, they're hardworking, but that's not the case at all. <laughs> not at all. At least I thought that naively. And you run into people who just don't want to put any work in at all. And um, so it's really up to you how far you make it. I, I tell people all the time, if you just show up to work, you're going to be ahead of at least 60% of your peers. Right. Just by showing up in a timely fashion, you'll be ahead of 60, 70% of your peers. Uh, Matt Taibbi, do you know who that is? The, yeah, yeah. The jur- he wrote a review on his Substack, and he's got a popular Substack. Uh, I support and follow him. He wrote something very interesting that I want to ask you about because you mentioned uh, the social media aspect. And so in his review, <clears throat> he says, the civil rights movement was won in courts, but also by simple force of argument. We're all human beings and loving one another, as Martin Luther King put it, is our basic Christian command. That simple message moved people over time. The gay rights movement similarly earned wide acceptance in part because the public believed the research about the immutability of orientation and took in the work of people like psychologist Evelyn Hooker, which showed gay people were not suffering from from a pathology and therefore not afflicted with a disorder that needed curing Minds were opened by these simple truths. I found that interesting because I disagree about the second half of that. I believe social media is what, and, and the rigged algorithms of social media normalize the entire LGBTQ movement. And that without social media, there would not be same-sex marriage. That it, people, think like, oh, how did America change on a dime? And if you go look at the timing of social media and when it started really having incredible impact on American culture, that's when the whole same-sex marriage and the LGBT thing took off. And, and Twitter, in particular, which controls the media, is the most secular and LGBT-friendly place on Earth. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with everything that you said there. And I, I read the review by Matt, which, was, which I thought was uh, very insightful. I don't agree with everything that he says yeah. in it, obviously, because he's coming from a different, I don't know what his politics are, but I think he's pretty liberal. Um, but he's not, he hasn't bought into the gender stuff. Um, and, but I would agree with you about social media. I mean, I, I think that there's a few things going on. There were trends in American society that, that were long running before social media. And then social media comes along and is, it's gasoline on the fire and fuels it. So in particular with marriage, I mean, I, I don't think that um, the push for 
for gay marriage certainly began with Twitter or social media. Right. Uh, and you could go back far before that. You start to see the churches essentially abandon the sanctity of marriage long before that. I think that's kind of the beginning point. Uh, you, you, for, first, you, you, you give up on the idea that, the mar- that marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant. A lot, of, a lot of churches just abandon that wholesale. And then many things fall from there. But with social media, especially because this is what you know, kids spend all their time. I think the last figure I saw was like 10 hours a day or something like that. The youngest generations are on their phone. Uh, so it's just this direct pipeline into their brains. Um, and also it creates this environment. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, you go to school and you're in the peer culture, peer pressure thing when you're in school because you're surrounded by your peers. But then you go home and you have a little bit of a break from that because you're not surrounded by them. So at least you're, you can get at home, you, you can kind of recenter yourself. Your parents have some chance maybe to pull you back and um, center you again in the family. But now they, they leave school, but they never leave their peers. Their peers follow them around like this cloud because they have their, their uh, phones with them. I, I say it all the time, parenting I think is so much harder than my parents' generation, your parents' generation, and it's because and I'm much older than you, I'm 55, Uh, in my home, even though my parents got divorced when I was about five, six years old, uh, but in my home, whether living with my mother or father, we had one record player, two TVs, and one phone line that didn't have call waiting. And so anything that I did in the house or my apartment, my mother could hear and could, she'd be laying in bed and go, Jason, get out of the cookie jar. And maybe that was just a prediction because I like to overeat, but, <laughs> but she could hear it. And, and, and I'm just saying like a parent's voice is so muted in a home now because kids put earbuds mm-hmm. in, they hop on their phone and things like that. And so I, I just, what technology has done to American society and culture, I think we know it, but I don't think we fully understand just how much harder things are and just how much influence we've turned over to. I say it all the time, like I was a kid, big Michael Jackson fan. Michael Jackson would be on national TV two, three times a year, tops, and would be a big deal. Whole family, oh, Michael Jackson's gonna perform at the such and such. And it's like, I'm like, we're now here in 2022 where your kids have 24-hour access to whatever Snoop Dogg thinks, whatever marijuana he's smoking, who he's having sex with. His whole worldview is easily accessed 24-7, and I just don't, celebrities have been given an outsized influence because of all these technological advances. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it, well, it's weird, actually, because they're, in some ways, outsized influence, and sometimes, in some ways, their influence has been has been muted a little bit, um, because there are so many of them. So each individual celebrity has less power than they used to. I mean, they're, they're all on the same message, though. Right, but like, the, there is no Michael Jackson anymore. I don't think there ever will be another Michael Jackson in terms of the just someone of that star power who himself is a national event whenever he's doing something. That doesn't exist anymore, but there are so many of them, and they are all on the same page ideologically. So um, the effect on the kids is even worse because it's so immersive, and they're just in this all the time. And there are so many. And also, there, there, there are so many celebrities and famous people um, that the kids now have their own 
you know, Michael Jackson, you all shared that. That was your celebrity, right? I mean, that's like he's a celebrity of that era. And there was only a few of them. Uh, now, each and each the kids have their own world of celebrities that you might not even know about. And um, they're they're constantly in that world all the time. So I want to end today with this question and then we'll get into a much larger discussion about the documentary uh, for Friday's show. But if you had to point to one or two things that are why you're so courageous, why you're willing to take these risks, and I know faith has to be a little bit a part of it, but if you had to explain to to me, just why are you so courageous? I look at a man, again, wife and four kids, and I'm just blown away that you're willing to take on this fight. Why is that? It's hard for me to answer why I'm so courageous because I don't, I honestly, I don't consider, I, that's not, I, I don't consider, I wouldn't describe myself that way. Um, but the thing that motivates me is you, you say that I have, you know, I have a wife and four kids. So that's a big part of it is that I have kids. So I'm very invested in the future of our, 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 our culture, the world that we're leaving them. I also, I also believe what I'm saying. I think that's a, a really important part of this. So when I talk about whatever I'm talking about, gender ideology especially, but any other topic, if I'm talking about it, I actually believe it. I'm not, I'm not just saying it. And I think that what I've noticed, especially among conservative influencers or whatever, um, not all of them, but a great number of them, from my vantage point, it doesn't seem they actually believe what they're saying. They're just kind of saying it for attention. And if you're saying it for attention, then you're going to be making these calculations all the time. You're going to say, well, I, this is how far I can go. I get all the attention that I want, but I'm going to get, there's going to be less backlash as long as I go up to this line. I don't go beyond that line. And so you're always making these kind of, uh, these kind of bargains within yourself, right? Um, but for me, I just believe it. Like, so when I talk about gender ideology is a poison, and it's one of the greatest threats to our children, and it's total lunacy and madness, I 100% totally believe that in my heart. And so um, everything that comes from that to me just feels natural. If I believe that and I have kids, then of course I'm going to invest totally in fighting against it. What else am I going to do? I mean, am I going to am I going to know that this is out there and, it, and it's threatening my own children and just sit here and do nothing? I can't I can't I just can't imagine that. Are the good guys going to win? I think, well, we know, in, scripturally, we know, we've already seen the last page of the book, so we know ultimately that we win uh, in, the, in the shorter term. I do believe that this fight in particular, the fight that we talk about in the film, is a winnable fight. But any fight in the culture, if we're going to win it, it's going to be over the course of generations because we lost the culture over the course of generations. And right now we are kind of the guerrilla fighters um, in, a, in, a, in a hostile environment. We're kind of the ones in the woods that are... Um, having to hide and, you know, come up with these little operations. And we got to this point over the course of generations. So it only makes sense that if to pull ourselves out of it, it's going to take generations too. But we have to be, we have to be in the fight long term. If we're only looking for, here's my five-step plan and this will all be solved by next Tuesday, or here's a, a, a switch that I can flip and everything's fine. If that's what you want, then you're not really in the fight. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to say to yourself, this is a winnable fight. But I'm not going to be around when it's finally won. Okay, I'm, I am doing this for my kids and my grandkids, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at legacy, right? People used to care about legacy. They used to build, you used to have people that they'd think, okay, I, I want a statue to be built to me when I'm, when I'm dead. I, I want people to be, you know, I, I want my ancestors I'm, or my, my descendants. I'm, I'm worried about them. 
Uh, these days, everything is so immediate. No one cares about legacy anymore. No one, no one thinks, you know, 50 years down the line, let alone five minutes down the line. So. Well, I, I want to stop because you're taking me down a path that's going to define our conversation uh, tomorrow. So let's play tomorrow. But I, I want to end on this note that the problem we got going on in this culture is everybody wants to be on the right side of history. And history is going to be written by whoever wins the war. We used to actually want to be on the right side of God. And that defined, you know, who went down in history. Were you on the right side of God? History is written by whoever's in power. And so people got their f wet finger in the air. <laughs> the left's in power. They're going to write history. They're in control of all the institutions that cover history. And so... They, 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 their decisions are easy. For those of us that are believers, we want to be on the right side of God. That's a tougher path. And uh, I'm glad you're on it. Uh, I can't wait till tomorrow so I can, we can start. I'm going to ask Matt tomorrow, how come you left God out of what is a woman? All right, we'll see you tomorrow.